Back empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Back to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty and rewards points, and gift cards. Get started by downloading the Back app today and treat your digital assets just like cash. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Jim Haskell, ladies and gentlemen, is on the other side of the mic. He's at Bridgewater. We've been very excited for this show because Bridgewater is the largest hedge fund in the world, right? And they've been diving deeper in their exploration of the Bitcoin market. But there's also a lot of macro things that we've been unpacking here at The Block, especially my colleague Ryan Todd and myself. Jim, I want the audience to get an introduction to who you are and what exactly you do at the firm. But before we get into that, we were we were kind of joking, musing about Archegos, Archegos, however you pronounce it. But I think it it identifies one of the many weird risks that we've seen creep up in markets. And the list goes on almost in sort of like a Billy Joel, you know, we didn't start the fire away, GameStop and Gamma Squeezes, Wall Street bets and meme stock, the rise of ARK, crypto and corporates buying Bitcoin. I mean, there's a lot of unprecedented things happening in markets and a lot of risks that appear to be creeping up. So as someone who kind of makes a living managing portfolio risk to an extent, how do you make sense of all these developments and how does it change the way you think about risk today? Well, I think, first of all, investing is always about risk, right? It's, uh, it's easy to identify potential returns and really hard to identify the risks. And sometimes the risks that are most obvious are obvious to everyone. Therefore, they're not, they don't exhibit themselves in the ways that unobserved risk can definitely uh, do so. I think we're in an environment, and we'll discuss this more, Frank, which is that we're in an environment of massive liquidity provision, and that is going to open up doors to more types of risk taking because money is essentially free. And whenever money is free, it's going to be taken advantage of, and there'll be things like leverage that are applied. And I think, I don't know this particular case inside out, but I think what we're seeing here is a lot of leverage coming from a family office structure which is not as heavily regulated and, um, and, and some of those bets went bad. And then the deleveraging of that, you know, is creating terrible news for that particular entity, but potentially some spillover to other entities with similar positions, which is very typical. Um, it's just that it doesn't always exhibit itself from a, from a family office. I just looked it up and apparently Archegos is sort of Greek for chief or principal leader. It's almost like a biblical term. And this seems, the cataclysm almost seems biblical in nature. Do you think that it shows that it's still possible for funds to have access to unsustainable levels of leverage? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, remember, this is a family office. That's the best, to my best of my understanding. It's not even a, 
SEC regulated fund because family offices tend to be smaller in size. So I, I don't know that the actual details here. From a Bridgewater perspective, you know, we've been closely monitoring this uh, in our trading department to make sure that there's no spillover or no undue risk to us. And we're pretty confident that that to be the case, but we're continuing to monitor that. My actual involvement with this hasn't, hasn't been really that deep. So, you know, I can only tell you what I'm, what I'm reading as well, which is an interesting thing because there's, of course, a lot of regulation on the amounts of leverage that can be utilized when you're an SEC regulated entity and not as much when you're a, a family office. So that needs to be, I think, looked at. And, uh, but I, I really, beyond that, I, I can't really comment on this particular case. What about inflation? That's another thing that folks continue to talk about and pinpoint as um, a risk that's creeping up in the markets. Investors and increasingly corporates are sounding the alarm about the impact of stimulus, stimmies, as the Gen Zs are calling them, those stimulus packages and bond buying. They're sounding the alarm about the impact on inflation. And the inflation boogeyman is is one of the things apparently that's been drawing CFOs and CIOs to Bitcoin. But in your view, are these views or these fears justified or are they overblown or, or, or maybe not being looked at enough? I think they are justified. I think we are in a 180 degrees opposite environment than we were you know, 40 years ago. So let me take a step back, uh, Frank, if, if, if I can. I think it's the challenge of our time. It's not necessarily inflation. It's the challenge of the end of the long-term the long-term debt cycle. So it's a secular change. It's a big paradigm shift. So if, if I take you back to the 1970s, which for most investors today, and maybe much of your audience, it's like, what age is that from? But if you go back to the 1970s, you know, the 1960s were about the Great Society, the Vietnam, big fiscal deficits. And then as we rolled into the 1970s, we also got uh, a lot of international turmoil, particularly in the Middle East, two oil embargoes, which you know basically constrained the supply side. And at the time, the economies were very rigid. There was a much big, much larger union pre presence you know, in the UK economy, in the, the Anglo economy, the US economy. And that meant that you know price wage increases could translate quicker into inflation. And all of this was really changed uh, when Paul Volcker came into the Fed, nominated by a Democrat, Jimmy Carter, in 1979, because inflation was so out of control. And then the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions were literally about sort of reversing the trend of government's involvement in economies. And since that time, you know, the combination of Paul Volcker ratcheting up interest rates and particularly inflation-adjusted interest rates, what we call real interest rates, very high, that and the political movement to essentially go a different way and you know put the private sector as the preeminent force and scale back the size of government meant that for the next 40 years you got this different paradigm where you got preemptive inflation fighting as soon as like you started to get to capacity in an economic cycle central banks would raise interest rates that would shut off the cycle uh, it would cause some pain but eventually that could be reversed through the reduction of interest rates and so there's a, a chart I tend to show, which is showing that since 1980, every high in interest rates during, you know, as you go through these cycles has been lower and lower and every trough has been lower and lower. 
And that works, right? That's what we call MP1. That's traditional monetary policy. But the problem with that is that when you run out of room, you know, once you get inflation anchored and you can lower interest rates as a result, that also means debt levels can be higher and higher because the thing that affects debt holders is not necessarily the load of debt. It's the debt servicing every month, right? That they have to pay. So if interest rates are going down, you can afford a bigger stock of debt. But when interest rates hit zero, that becomes a problem because the central banks can't essentially lower the interest rates effectively below zero. And so all of a sudden, the debt, the debt overhang becomes significant. So let me fast forward from you know, that period in 1980 all the way to the global financial crisis in 2008, 2007 and eight, because it was at that time you know, that we got interest rates at zero. And so what did the central banks do, led by the United States and the UK? Because they couldn't lower interest rates anymore, they started printing money. And you remember that, like after the global financial crisis, there was a big expansion uh, and it was called quantitative easing. And we moved from what I'll call MP1, which was lowering interest rates to control the cycles, to MP2, which was lowering interest rates to zero, but once you've done that, to print money. And the way that money printing worked is it went to the financial institutions and the financial institutions that bought assets, that helped clean up bank balance sheets, and that started to drive a wealth effect. But importantly, Frank, it was very different in terms of most people own credit and very little own financial assets. And so it, it started an elongated recovery, but it was a very dissatisfying recovery. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when the central banks started to reverse policy in the middle of the decade, 2015 and 16, by 2018, it was a it was a failure. If you remember back in 2018, international markets were very, very weak. And then in the fourth quarter, U.S. markets were weak. And then in December of 2018, the U.S. stock market had one of its worst months ever, if not the worst ever. I mean, I, we have to check that. I, I, know, I know it was certainly among the worst ever. Right. And so what the Federal Reserve basically acknowledged then is, okay, this is a big problem. Uh, we're going to have to be much, we're going to have to change the paradigm. We're going to have to see growth because otherwise we're going to experience deflation and we're going to lose control. So they basically jawboned all the interest rate increases and the balance sheet tightening from the quantitative easing out of the market in 2019. We come into 2020 and then bang, we get the global pandemic. We immediately go to zero and all of those trends of money printing are accelerated and fiscal expansion yeah. we go from MP2 to MP3, which is basically monetary policy in its traditional form is dead. And now what it's going to be is fiscal policy financed in large part by central banks printing money. Mm -hmm. And this is why you're getting the move towards alternative asset classes you know, in 2020, of course, Bitcoin's done done well and crypto's done well in different forms. I'm not an expert on it, but I think that's why. And then, of course, gold had a good run in 2020 and a little bit weaker now. But you're starting to see moves into alternative storeholds of wealth because you're expanding the amount of fiat money. And that's literally what's happening. So I'm sorry to be long-winded, but that's... No, it's a great backdrop that kind of leads to... One of the important questions I have here about the Fed, if we double click on what's happening today with that backdrop in mind, Fed Chair Powell has said that the recovery is far from complete and that 
They will continue to provide the economic support that the economy needs, the fiscal support that it needs. What's the House view on his approach currently, and will we see the impact on assets be like we've seen these past few months? Yeah, I mean, you you raised a really uh, good point, which is, and I'll just read you a, a quote. Uh, this is from June 2020, and but it's very indicative. It's not just, by the way, the Federal Reserve. It's all around the developed world. And Jerome Powell said in June 2020, quote, we're not even thinking about raising interest rates. Okay, and we kind of of has reaffirmed that all the way through ECB President Christine Lagarde in September 2020. The current uh, environment of of lower inflation, the concerns we uh, face are different, and this needs to be reflected in our inflation aim. And then, uh, you know, in August 2020, reported the Fed Review of Policy, Strategy and Tools says the role of monetary policy is to support a strong, stable economy that benefits all Americans. The characterization of our maximum employment goal is broad-based and inclusive, clarifies that the Federal Reserve seeks to foster economic conditions that benefit everyone. So notice in the dual mandate of the Federal Reserve, which is full employment and price stability, you don't even hear anything about price stability. And that's because there's a recognition that the threat, uh, I would say recognition of two things. The threat is actually deflation, number one. That's the primary threat. In other words, if the Fed didn't print all that money, you would actually have a much higher probability of deflation and a Great Depression, okay, because of the amount of indebtedness and the way that works, which we can talk about if you want. But also, um, you have the remedy to that has been quantitative easing, which all the forces that were in play to essentially widen the the, the wealth gap between the very rich and the very poor, uh, that just accelerated that even further. So now the averages don't mean much and policy is aimed towards preventing, you know, a, a wider problem, you know, where you, that's where revolutions are, are essentially started. So you, so policy is really aimed at the, at those that have not benefited from the financial asset wealth and those that have not benefited from the enhancement of technology. Uh, those that haven't really seen wage gains, and that runs now the risk because of the policies being put into place of not deflation, but higher inflation, yes. Do you think that this sort of move to alternatives or allocators thinking differently about where they should be placing their bets, is that purely driven by the inflation folks are worried about and the action of the Fed, or is it also tied to The way in which, and this has been talked a lot about in the press, the way in which COVID has kind of made us think differently about not just the status quo of fiscal and monetary policy, but also the the status quo on societal norms and the way healthcare can work, the way banking can work, or is it tied mostly to these economic issues that you're outlining well, I think what's interesting, I think China's the leader on this in terms of the development of digital currency, right? But digital currency distinct from crypto, right? Or gold, for example, which the I think the primary goal is to protect wealth outside the reach and, you know, outside the reach of government. Because the problem here, Frank, is that governments don't have enough money to service their debts. And this is not just a U.S. problem. This is a problem globally, right? If you look at the amount of debt and liabilities, it's just incredibly high. You know, 
up over a thousand percent of GDP if you encounter all the entitlements in the U.S., for example, all the liabilities. There's no way we can grow ourselves out of that. So the printing of money, because there's so little money to service those those obligations, is a big deal. And effectively, you know what what investors at the front edge of this are trying to do is protect themselves from the expansion of fiat money. So there's two issues here. There's digitization, which I think would have happened anyway, right? Because because we've become digital with everything, right? And and the pandemic, I think, accelerated that. And so, you know, I think the digitization of, of national currencies and sovereign currencies, that to me makes all the sense. But that doesn't eliminate the threat of government controlling the amount of currency and therefore potentially destroying wealth if they create too much of it. And so that, I think, is what's leading investors to uh, identify and protect their wealth through alternative non-government uh, sources of wealth, whether it be traditional ones like gold or precious metals, which are transferable and they can be moved and they can be protect privacy and all of that, or whether it's crypto, you know, which is sort of looks like the millennials or the younger generations, I should say, uh, preferred type of asset. And how did Bitcoin and other forms of digital assets enter the purview of Bridgewater? What was the aha moment that made folks within the firm more broadly consider this akin to gold as an inflation hedge type of asset? Well, first of all, let me just say we are not at all convinced that that crypto is a replacement for gold. Most of our clients are institutional clients, and uh, gold is a sort of tried and true asset uh, to protect wealth. Now, what I would say about that is our attention is turned to Bitcoin because, as, as Ray Dalio, our founder, said on a podcast with me, it's one hell of an, uh, of an invention, right? It's, uh, it's, there's a lot of attributes of it that are interesting to note. But I don't think it's tried and true and proven in terms of its ability to replace gold. For example, would central banks buy Bitcoin as a, as a storehold of wealth? You know, we'd have to talk to those central banks, but I doubt it. But corporate CFOs are certainly interested in, in holding it. They look at this environment you're describing, the debasement of the dollar and these mounting fears of inflation, and they're viewing converting their cash balances to Bitcoin as a remedy to to some of these issues. Does that like stand to reason to you or, or maybe that's going a bit too far? Well, look, I think that Bitcoin and other crypto is uh, interesting and, and, and I think people are getting and, and there are platforms that are getting used to using it. And, you know, I think it's going through tests, right? And so it doesn't surprise me that there are entities out there that are increasingly, you know, experimenting with it. In fact, you know, what I would say is like we certainly have not rejected it as a potential storeholder wealth. We just wouldn't use it in big size yet because I think the volatility is very high. It doesn't have some of the of the properties or characteristics of what we would t- traditionally like as a as a storeholder of wealth. Um, for example, like. Uh, one of the things that we've noted in in publications and so on is that you know regulation could clamp down on it. Uh, that's that's always possible. So these are things that would worry us, but that doesn't mean that there aren't attributes which are fantastic and that you know we also recognize. So I am not at all surprised that 
it's being adopted and there's interest in it. And I, and I think it's warranted. I, I really do. I just don't know if it will, where this will all land out. Let me just put it that way. And therefore, I just want to make one more point, which is when I'm thinking about how to protect myself in a world with heavy debts and lots of money printing, yeah. I think you have to have a diversified portfolio of alternative storeholds of wealth, things that will protect you. And I would, I would note that many, many investors do not have that. Totally. And I, I think the more important point, which you made at the beginning of this, is whether folks are looking at things within the Bitcoin market or elsewhere, this heavy debt environment, the macro backdrop is forcing people, forcing allocators to look at other alternative investment opportunities more broadly. Um, you mentioned gold as this institutionalized historic store of wealth. You're also a firm that is known to study market history and market cycles. Is there a parallel to what we're seeing with Bitcoin's emergent institutionalization? Good question. Um, I don't think that I can recall one that's that's like this. Uh, you know, we've had the development of inflation-sensitive uh, assets. Um, so, for example, inflation index bonds are a great asset. Uh, at least they can protect you against CPI, you know, consumer price index inflation. Of course, that's only one basket of inflation, and no one measure of inflation is, is particularly uh, trustworthy, but it's certainly helpful. That was developed first in the UK in the early 80s and then the US in the late 90s. So that was a very successful asset, but it's not getting the kind of attention uh, that, that something like Bitcoin is getting. And I think that's, you know, again, my own view of that is, is, is that's simply because of the digitization, the internet technology, and the younger generation's familiarity with that and, um, and, and how it works. So it doesn't surprise me. But I can't remember um, off the top of my head anything that was uh, as uh, attention-getting as, uh, as, as crypto or Bitcoin has been. It's kind of a double-edged sword for us. It drives traffic, but often leads to many sleepless nights, as my colleagues can probably attest to, especially these last few months since the beginning of the year. It's development after development from firms like Visa and PayPal doubling down on their own respective initiatives to Fidelity launching an ETF. The reason why I asked the question is because, you know, I just can't imagine something happening so quickly um, and, and folks sort of coming around to it so quickly, having covered this asset since the heady days of 2017. It's been it's been wild to see it come to life. And I wonder if it's uh, the efforts of firms within the space or just the fact that people are afraid of things like inflation. If COVID didn't happen and then the money printing didn't happen, maybe Bitcoin would only be at like $5,000. Who's to say? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a good point. You, you know, it's, uh, I get asked uh, all the time, our firm gets asked all the time, our founder uh, and co-CIO, Ray Dalio, is uh, really on this in terms of thinking about alternative sources of uh, uh, storeholds of wealth. You know, and I think the way I think about this is that the answer to your question is almost impossible to, to be accurate about. I mean, we don't know, right? 
I think we can say with uh, a relatively high degree of probability that all of this money printing worldwide is leading investors to alternative storeholds of wealth. And then the question is like which one to hold. And I, and I think the answer, my best answer is don't hold anyone in, in a concentrated way. You know, that if you're trying to, you know, usually when you have significant inflationary periods, um, particularly when you have these kinds of wealth divides that are also accompanied by high taxation, which I think is coming, uh, especially for those that have assets and, and more wealth. I think it is important to construct a diversified portfolio of different things that will help you preserve your purchasing power. Because at the end of the day, the only reason for investing is that you can translate it into purchasing power. And if you recognize what environment you're in, where you know the, the path of least resistance right now on the part of governments is to print their way out, particularly if they aren't, you know, the only real constraint to that is inflation, right? There's no price to be paid right now until there is, of course. But if you get if you get that, you know, you really want to see your way through that and preserve your purchasing power and worry less about the returns you get and more about how much how many goods you can buy with what you have. So I think, you know, a combination of cash, although not that much because cash can be a very risky asset. I think a combination of cash, gold, inflation index bonds, even some equities, right? Because if you look at high inflationary periods, particularly if it's sort of a change in a currency regime, which could be happening with the US dollar, uh, that can actually result in a rise in equities as, as people look to get into, into actual tangible assets, you know, and they consider equities to be those. Uh, so equities and and maybe a little bit of crypto as well. And I say a little bit because it's so volatile uh, and it's it, that that you don't need a lot to, to have a to have a uh, impact on a portfolio. So my view is that if you combine these things, uh, commodities as well, broader commodities, not just gold. Right. If you combine these things uh, and you you can give yourself the highest probability of of surviving through such a period where traditional stocks and bonds don't typically do very well. And when I say traditional stocks and bonds, I mean, I mentioned that you want stocks a little bit as part of that diversified portfolio, but it wouldn't want to be over-concentrated in the way that many investors are, mostly because that's the asset class that's done so well. And typically that's what happens is that when an asset class does well, it leads to more and more money coming into that asset class, which is a very bad idea usually, right? And nominal bonds are terrible to own, own during these. Now, I want to distinguish that between inflation index bonds and nominal bonds, but not a good asset to hold because it's a fixed yield that you know, you're getting and that's being eroded away through, uh, you know, through inflation. One more thing, Frank, I would say is that don't leave out tangible assets such as, such as land and certain types of real estate and infrastructure. Those tangible types of assets can also be good storeholds of wealth in the illiquid world you know, in terms of how to, how to see yourself through. See, Andreas, I told you buying this home down here <laughs> in Sarasota was a good idea. Backed is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Back puts the power in your hands to get your crypto, loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send, or spend them using Back. Get started today and get it together with Back. Available for download now in the App Store and Google Play Store.
And I also want to take a moment to thank Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Whether it's your first trade or your 100th, Kraken has the tools to help you hit your financial goals in crypto. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week, and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. You mentioned bonds, so let's let's maybe double-click on the bond market. We saw that interesting sell-off earlier this year. There were some comparisons to what we saw in 2013. What interesting things are you and the firm seeing in bonds today that that make you maybe a little bit worried well if you look at the amount of fiscal spend so we just are getting a 1.9 trillion dollar you know stimulus package even though the economy is recovering very strongly so let's call that more than a stimulus package whatever whatever you want to call it 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 is that is that is that is a lot of stimulus yeah and let me also say that i think we get almost immune to these types of numbers like that is an incredible amount of money Okay. And, uh, it remember, makes the, yeah. No, I just remember, um, you know, when Hank Paulson was thinking about TARP, he was like, well, 1 trillion would be too big, but 500 billion wouldn't be enough. And that's how we kind of settled on, I think it was 700 billion, but now it's, you know, it, it seems like there is no limit and, and, you know, whether it's fiscal or monetary activity, most of the leadership in Washington has indicated that there is no limit. Right. So, and when you look at the, you know, when you look at that spending and what it means in terms of budget deficits, those need to be financed, right? So the budget deficits right now, you know, we're looking at kind of World War II types of levels, like 20% of GDP, that kind of thing. Um, You know, don't hold me to the exact number, but it, it ranges around that. These are incredible numbers. So that means that the treasury has to go out. And when I say this, by the way, I'm also talking about international governments. Uh, as you, you know, as well in Europe and in, in Japan, and you know, all of them are in, in a similar type of predicament. So you're you're going out, and uh, not only are you getting the 1.9 trillion, but you've heard the the Biden administration they they have a lot more behind that, right? A whole infrastructure plan and so on. And yes, they're going to raise taxes, so you're going to collect some revenue on that to finance it. But they can't raise nearly enough. I mean, if, even no, if you raise capital gains or do a number of the things you're talking about. I was listening to um, a Goldman podcast a few days ago. I mean, you barely can get to 1 trillion if you raise, you know, capital gains to pre-Trump levels and a few other things, corporate taxes. Also, let's remember too that, you know, the more you raise taxes, the more you penalize capital, the the less, you know, that is at some point that has deleterious effects on growth. And so you get into that very bad scenario and the administration wants to avoid that. At the same time, they, they have big plans. So why do I bring this up? Well, you have to go out and issue bonds in order to finance this. Now, the question is, who is the buying base for these bonds? Right? Yeah. Who, who wants to own these bonds at current yields with inflation starting to rise? Right? You know, it's, uh, I mean, there are some obligatory buyers of, of those bonds and there may even be people that have totally different ideas and they'll buy the bonds, but the massive size of the amount of issuance leaves a big hole, and that is very likely to be filled by the central bank. And uh, that's that's literally called effectively debt monetization. Okay. 
So one of our concerns on bonds is if you left it to the free market alone, yields would rise to clear the market because those yields aren't attractive to private sector uh, uh, buyers. And so, you know, we'd be bearish on bonds that way. And if you go the other way, which is, okay, no, those yields will be effectively controlled by the Federal Reserve buying, you know, purchasing the bonds with printed money, and they could do it all day long if they wanted to, that's going to be inflationary, probably anyway. Or if it's not inflationary in goods and services, it will be inflationary in asset prices and cause really, really distorted asset prices and bubbles and things like that. So it depends whether that printing is preserved in in financial assets or whether it, it is resulting in, in spending. I, my guess would be that uh, as the pandemic hopefully comes to an end with vaccinations and so on, the built up cash levels will begin to be spent. Then you have the fiscal spend from the, uh, from the government and all of that seems pretty inflationary. So when you add that up, why would you want to own bonds at current levels from that perspective either? It's not a good scenario for the bond market. Let me also say that the bond market, the levels, the yields in the bond market have also been very supportive for the equity market. So if you really got a bond blow off, you know, that's not great news for equities either, although there's certain segments of the equity market and so on that I think could withstand it better than others. But you even you've seen, for example, I think it's interesting, as bond yields rise, you've seen this kind of struggling of the NASDAQ, you know, many of these high flying tech stocks, which are long duration, they don't have a ton of earnings, but investors are paying up for what they see as future earnings. You know, once you get interest rates rising at the long end, it's a real constraint and headwind for some of those companies because, you know, there's an alternative which you don't really have to take the same bet on as the as the competitor in terms of yield starts to show itself. So yeah, we don't like bonds. I think bond that I think that's going to be a story. I think it's either going to be controlled by the government and see either an ex explicit or an implicit yield curve control type of thing, or it's going to be um, a real problem for the markets. Yeah. Well, we, we really got into it. So I, I promise that we talk a little bit about your background and, and what you're working on at the firm. Um, but there's so many things to unpack and explore here. I've watched a few of your videos. I think back in December, you put out something about the future of the Fed. So these are a lot of the questions that you're grappling with on a day-to-day -day basis. But let us know maybe a little bit more about what you're, what you're working on on a daily basis at the firm. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, for and I joined Bridgewater in two thousand three from Goldman Sachs, where I was managing money uh, at Goldman Sachs, mostly in the emerging market space, and then I was a strategist in my last couple of years uh, in the private wealth management space. But I was very attracted to Bridgewater for many reasons, and for the first um, you know seventeen years or so, I was a, a portfolio strategist and then a senior portfolio strategist and. The way we manage money at Bridgewater is we have, uh, we basically do two things. We, we systematize our fundamental understanding and everyone's contributing to that in the research department, outside the research you know, department. And, uh, and when I say systematize, we're creating indicators, cause effect relationships, which we can measure in markets. And we're running those every day to uh, try and generate alpha in our alpha strategy or to use the logic underneath that for our strategic asset allocation and so on. As a portfolio strategist, I would be taking these ideas and I'd be working with our biggest clients, you know, which was another source of our value added to bring many of these principles and ideas to them. And so we work very close with our chief investment officers, which is Ray Dalio, Bob Prince, and Greg Jensen. And, uh, and we would 
be working back and forth between research and, and, and these clients. About three years ago, um, I, you know, I'm an avid consumer of podcasts and, uh, and I realized how sort of outdated in a sense, our Bridgewater daily observations, which are flagship daily publication was in the sense that we didn't do any podcasts and the world was moving uh, beyond us in a sense. And, and, and our clients were absorbing information in ways that we weren't meeting. So I continued to be a portfolio strategist, but I started to do some podcasts, you know, as almost like a beta test. Yeah. Then that continued into 2019. And then in 2020, when the pandemic hit, it was like, oh my goodness, we're all at home. Uh, and we need to I like- need something to do. Yeah, we need to accelerate this big time. So I started to ramp that up in a big way. And then towards the end of the year, I was asked if I would be interested in actually being the editor-in-chief of the Bridgewater Daily Observations, which would go beyond podcasts and sort of strategically, you know, bring our research to uh, all of our clients, you know, from research as, as opposed to as a strategist. And uh, so since the beginning of the year, I've been the editor-in-chief of the Bridgewater Daily Observations, and I continue to do the podcast uh, for, for that publication as well. What's your favorite part of doing the podcast? It's it's a stressful job. I try to tell, you know, my colleagues here at the block. It's it's not easy. It's a lot of blood, sweat, equity, and tears. Well, that's what that's what I actually like about it. First of all, I think it's an incredibly cool form. You know, you can put on a podcast and you could be washing your dishes, driving your your kids to a, a baseball game. Uh, you know, whatever whatever you're doing, and always absorbing that information. Be walking your dog it's really very easy and maneuverable to consume. So that's the end product. And as a result of that, and it's become more accepted, like one of the things I really like about it is that a lot of people want to be my guests. And so I get really interesting and good content, right? And then I love the process of bringing that to fruition, you know, like recording it as we're doing now, but then editing it and making it a really good thing for our our clients, for our listeners, um, whoever wants to listen to that. And uh, I also, you know, it's it's also uh, true for a, a regular, what we call wire, which is a daily observation. I enjoy, I enjoy publishing content. I really do. Whether it's in podcast form or written form, I think it's, I'm, I believe in education and I think that's what it is. And, uh, you know, we all should be lifelong learners and this is a great way to do that. So I'm really attracted to it. And, um, I'll never stop doing podcasts. I think it's just a great medium. And I'll, I'll, I'll turn around a question to you, Frank, which is like, I'm trying to figure out whether video cast or podcast is a better medium. I first thought, well, it must be video cast. But the more I think about it the, and how people consume it, it's an open question because I, I know that I don't want to be bound to a device. I just want the device to allow me to experience the podcast wherever I am. But I'd be interested in your thoughts on that too. Yeah, I mean, like, I, well, I like that Zencaster, a little plug for our tool that has been supporting the scoop for the last eight or so months, maybe longer since the beginning of the pandemic, now has video as a host. Like, it's really hard to, like, engage with my guests when I can't see them. But as a podcast consumer, I'm never really looking at it. Like, the last podcast I listened to was um, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. They were talking about, like, the impact of, decreasing uh, rates on the housing market and how we're going to go from hot to warm probably over the next year. 
I was uh, breaking out my new air fryer while I was listening to that. So I feel like with podcasts, people like that flexibility, like like you were mentioning. I don't want to think about how many people probably like listen to the scoop while showering, but I'm sure that's there's a large number there. People like the flexibility to do it while they're yeah. doing all sorts of different things. Yeah, like and I, I agree with you. I like to see whoever I'm talking to, but in terms of consuming it, I don't necessarily believe they need to see it in order to get great value from it uh, and maybe even more value for the reasons that, that you described. Yeah. Although I am kind of get, like, I do enjoy seeing my podcast guests. I am getting tired of <laughs> getting tired of Zoom phone calls. Yeah. I just want people to call me on my cell, you know, like <laughs> the old, the old days of yore. Yeah. Um, well, this is, this is really interesting. I, I, I think it's fun to like, get the perspective of, you know, someone who is really grappling with the markets and can kind of eloquently link it all together. Crypto often seems like it's siloed off in its own little world, but as it's become an institutional asset over the last year, it can be talked about in the same thread as everything that we're seeing in bonds, in equities, et cetera. And it's all tied together. I'm curious, across markets, whether it's crypto or or whatever, we talked about risks at the beginning of the show. And the thing about risks, right, is they're, they're obvious in hindsight, not so obvious when you're sort of trying to predict the future, which is the job of most allocators to a degree. But what risks do you think are not being looked at enough right now and that's something that's top of mind for the firm. I think that first of all, you're quite right. You know, the the real risk that worries me is what we can't see. It's you know because when you can see it, probably others can see it as well, and it and it's it's probably more embedded in pricing, right? But I, I but not always, not always. I, I think that the big deal here is that we just don't, I think, have a great internalization sometimes of how much money is sloshing around the system at zero interest rates and this type of money printing. Uh, and as a result, I think that that can manifest itself in so many different ways. We talked about inflation. That's certainly a risk. And mostly because when I look at big pools of capital, those, they're still uh, very reluctant to you know, change what has been successful for them, which has been heavily concentrated in equity or equity like risk, which has been a really good deal for them. You know, like if you just if you just held an, an S and P five hundred or a Nasdaq index fund, right? You know, what else do you need? You don't need anything else fancy. But the problem with that is that can last for quite some time in the way that it has. But it can probably be a wealth destroyer at some at some point, uh, given the kinds of uh, pricing. Uh, you know, it just always goes in waves and through time, any concentrated thing in one thing, right? So that that's a big worry of mine. But I think like, as we've seen, whenever you have this types of liquidity, and whenever you go through periods where risk doesn't assert itself or is quickly rectified, it almost sows the seeds for the next destruction because people start to take actions based on extrapolating that stability into the future. So we just saw the recent one we talked about, right? With with that family office, you just don't know where that that's where. Oh where it's yeah, <laughs> you don't know where it's going to come uh, next, and so 
I think as a money manager and what we pride ourselves at Bridgewater is appreciating the unknown and being able to deal with those types of risks, mostly by trying to enforce an adequate amount of diversification at all times. And I mean, like thinking through that diversification in a very profound way. So um, even if I go back and I look at some of the periods where we haven't done well, one of the things that I think is important is we always pre-planned what we couldn't account for. And those kinds of drawdowns were never outside the realm of what we would have expected. You know, we didn't get that kind of LTCM type of effect. If you remember back in the late 90s, where, you know, it's just a meltdown. We, we, we did, we definitely have had difficult periods, but they were all within the realm of, of expectations that we set out in advance. And, and I, I think we, we never have to take that, can't ever take it for granted, always have to be very humble about what we don't know and how the world might be changing. And that's why having these discussions is so valuable in terms of like trying to identify what you can and imagine what you can, you know? Yeah. And at the heart of it, like when I think about what you just outlined, the, the risks that you're examining at the heart of the advice you'd maybe offer clients is diversify, 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 look outside of the standard asset allocation strategy, um, which is where, again, cryptos and, and DeFi maybe steps in. When you think about the conversations you've had with clients over the last six months, are allocators thinking about DeFi, decentralized finance, and Bitcoin? And, and what type of questions are they asking the firm about those respective nascent corners of the market? Well, I think, first of all, the diverse, our advice has been diversification, really. I mean, and it's getting harder, right, because of all this liquidity and so on, that everything you know, people have used the term the everything bubble. Well, in some sense, there's some legitimacy, you know, to that. The money printing and the sheer magnitude of intervention in markets by governments has created more and more questions about the areas of the market that you're talking about. No, no question about it. And mostly because people are seeing those, you know, things like Bitcoin do very well. And they, they want to, they're asking us for what are our views on that, you know, and, and, and so on. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because, you know, we are basically an institutional money manager. So it does show you that there is at least interest in it. You know, as I mentioned before, to date, I think most of that's coming either from the CFOs that you talked about or CIOs of, of smaller entities like family offices that can move quicker, that may not have a board of trustees or things like that. Um, and, you know, they can they can use that in ways where it's kind of harder for big, big pools of capital that really need to see that asset play out over time before they would make allocations. But remember, but the yields are pretty insane. Have you seen some of these yields in the DeFi market? I mean, 20 percent APYs in, a, in an environment where the hunt for yield is strong. That seems like a place at least these smaller allocators you're talking about would very easily want to go. Well, I think look, it's possible. I, again, I, I want to stay away from where I think they should do. I certainly do agree that they are in a yield-starved world. Anything that's giving you higher yields is going to gain some interest and questions. So that's really where that's coming from. And uh, you know, we, uh, you know, Ray and, and and our director of investment research, Rebecca Patterson. You know, I would say about a month ago we wrote about this, and we also I did a podcast with her on this, and. Um, you know, what we're trying to do is just give our assessment of how we see this. And I think the bottom line is that it's a very interesting area 
it certainly got interesting characteristics. It also is not at this point what tried and true and some of the characteristics we think are going to be institutional storeholds of wealth, at least at this point. But man, is it interesting, you know, and uh, and certainly worthy of attention. And so I would leave it there. Like, I, I don't I think it's going to be more like that because I don't think that this environment is to the extent that the government can control it. And that's always a question. I think we're looking at multiple years of this type of policy until you can get out of these debt stocks and, and basically return to normal type of policy. Or I suppose the other alternative is that the governments, we're going to watch this, right? But governments can take advantage of very low interest rates and they can take in money to try and do government investments like infrastructure that can be pretty productivity enhancing and that can drive up real growth rates ultimately. We'll watch to see if that scenario comes true, but they can also waste a lot of money. And, uh, and, and as they print these big magnitudes and, and run these big deficits, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon investors to think through what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my entity? And how do I protect myself? You know? Yeah. I think it's almost a guarantee that there will be some waste for sure. Yeah. I, I would think that that's probable. Let me put it that way. I think that's a safe bet for, for us to make. Um, well, Jim, I could probably ask you like, a hundred or a thousand more questions, but we need to be respectful of your time. We need you to get back to the daily observation. I'm sure there's one coming out tomorrow that you're very excited about. Yeah. Um, and so we'll let you get back to the work you're doing at the firm. Jim Haskell, Senior Portfolio Strategist at Bridgewater. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much for the invite. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. This will be a great one. Ladies and gentlemen, talk to you next time.